Welcome to the Follower Podcast, a place for conversations about following Jesus to the depths of his heart and the ends of the earth. My name is Matthew Lewis, and I am so glad that you are here. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the follow-up podcast. Uh, good to be with you. I hope you enjoyed the last session with Alan Frau. Man, what a what a great session. Psalms for a Saturated Soul. Got some really good uh, feedback from you guys on that, so thanks for listening in. And today on the follow-up podcast, we have Jay Kim with us. Now, uh, if you don't know Jay Kim, he's a pastor of a, of a church in America, Westgate Church. He's also a writer and author of about a bajillion different things, <laughs> which we'll talk about <laughs> today. Um, analog Christianity, Analog Church. Uh, he writes for Christianity Today, Gospel Coalition, Missio Alliance, a whole bunch of different things. Um, but uh, he's actually a friend of a friend of the follower community, and he's jumping in today. So Jay, welcome to the follower podcast. So good to have you oh. with us. Thanks so much, Matt. Yeah, really been looking forward to to talking. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure it's going to be a good conversation for the people who listen. Um, I thought just to jump in, maybe give us a sense of of Jay. So I know a little bit you grew up in South Korea, moved across to America, but tell us a little bit about your story and, and where you're from. Yeah, yeah, I was born in South Korea, uh, what was kind of a smaller a city called Incheon at the time. It's a big sort of, you know, bustling metropolis now, I think. Um, so I was born there, uh, but did, didn't live there for very long. I My, my parents had a pretty uh, rough marriage. My mother became, a, she grew up sort of agnostic, really. And then when I was two, she had um, a significant sort of transformative, literally overnight encounter with the risen Christ. And she went from zero to a hundred, like just mm-hmm. her entire life changed. The The spirit of God grabbed a hold of her and she became a brand new person, new creation, literally overnight. So she began seeing everything her entire life sort of in a new light. She recognized the brokenness of her marriage and the uh, in- environment in which she was trying to raise me, you know, her infant son. So she, um, you know, lovingly sort of worked with my father for a couple of years, really prayed for him and asked him to, you know, go to church with her and consider Jesus and all these things. But my dad, um, for most of his life, just really wrestled with some heavy, heavy addictions, um, some demons he couldn't shake. So long story short, when I was four or five, it was at a point where our home life, from what I understand, our home life in Korea was just untenable. My mother felt like this is, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually not a safe place for me to raise my son. So we moved um, when I was four or five, we moved to the States and specifically we moved um, to California, to the the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, just south of San Francisco, what many people call Silicon Valley. And I've been here my whole life for almost 40 years, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, grew up again, my mother is still to this day, most passionate follower of Jesus, I know. So grew up in the church, grew up in the pews, uh, and thought I had this sort of rich, robust faith in Jesus. But really, in hindsight, when I got to college, I went through what is nowadays a very sadly common sort of deconstruction season of faith, and, and realized at that point that what I had was not really a rich, robust faith in Jesus, but um, 
uh, a faith sort of built on the wobbly stilts of 90s evangelical youth group culture, you know, and <laughs> and relationships and friendships and all of those things are significant and important, of course, and I'm actually quite grateful for that experience. But, um, you know, my faith kind of came crumbling down early on in college. And then in my early 20s, in the middle of college, as I was actually kind of nearing the end of undergrad, there was a group of guys from my church where I'd grown up um, a few years older than me at that point, they were in their mid to late twenties and they had this Monday night guys group going on where they would, you know, eat pizza and watch Monday night football and play video games and such. Um, and they invited me to that, even though I wasn't following Jesus at the time. And uh, I said, yes, because these were guys that I really liked and enjoyed spending time with. And lo and behold, you know, these nights would go from, just good hangs to hit, you know, 10 or 11 PM. And the conversations would turn to, um, really weighty, important, significant stuff. And it was the first time where I felt like I was invited to a space to bring all of my doubts and all of my mm -hmm. confusion and the complexities, all of my brokenness, all of my shame. And it felt really safe and warm and welcoming. And uh, long story short, through that group, I, I think in my early 20s, I encountered the risen Christ for the first time, you know, truly for the first time. God grabbed a hold of my heart and my mind by his spirit. And long story short, um, I started uh, volunteering in the youth group at the church where I had grown up. I was mm -hmm. uh, uh, a middle school boys small group leader, and mm -hmm. that whole experience changed my life. I just fell in love with um, the interactions and with these with these students. And so that led to a, a sort of I was I was majoring in in business management at the time at a the local state university, but. I really felt leading this small group, I felt a real call to ministry and specifically to youth ministry. And uh, so went, dropped out, went to Bible college, became a youth pastor. That eventually led to launching a college ministry, which eventually led to church planting. And, uh, you know, about 20 years later, here we are. So crazy, man. Yeah. And I've been to your church, man, and it's a, just a beautiful community as well. So amazing oh, to see the fruit you. of that uh, and, and where yeah. the Lord has led you in that, you know. Yeah. I, think, I think that something is so interesting for me there that I'd love you to just, um, I don't know, double click on if you can or zone in on is this idea that you really grew up in church. So, so yeah. you, you went like foreign to this idea. And yet even yeah. with, within that context that you were so saturated in, your coming to Jesus was dramatic. And I yeah. just think, you know, on the podcast, we've got people listening from all kinds of spaces. And I think one of the things we want to try and help people understand is that um, we really want to move beyond just some kind of like a, like a, like what you talk about, like a weak cultural into yeah. something real and authentic. Could you just unpack a little bit of that difference, you know, growing yeah. up in the strong Christian culture, but then knowing Christ and what that looked like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a great insight. Yeah, you know, from my own experience and from the last couple of decades of of having the the joy and privilege of serving and 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 leading in the context of local churches, one of the things I've learned is that, you know, people both Christians and those who are not followers of Jesus, I think, just naturally make a distinction between sacred and secular. And the way we draw the dividing line often is between church or religion uh, and 
everything outside of that. So Christians will say, okay, I'm a, you know, the sacred is found in um, the church and in my religion and in my faith. And, and then the secular is everything outside of that. It's my workplace. It's my neighborhood. It's my school. And, and yes, missionally, my calling is to carry the sacred into those secular places. But in my experience, what I've learned is that the dividing line between sacred and secular exists not between the church and culture. Um, it just exists down the hearts of human souls and and human societies. Um, we are constantly living, I think, in a, a push and pull, in the tension of the push and pull between the sacred and the secular. And the reason I say that is because one of the reasons my faith came crumbling down was that though I was in church all the time growing up, there was so much about my church experience that, that, you know, I didn't recognize it at the time, but in hindsight, what I realized was, oh, there was so much within my church experience in the church building, within the context of my local church community, that wasn't ne necessarily like of Jesus. It was mm. just a bunch of cultural mishmash that we had sort of cobbled together to create a particular experience and a particular community. And I'm actually not even criticizing that. I'm just saying I needed to get to a place in my life where I could see that clearly. Yeah. Because until I could see that clearly, by default, what that would mean for me is I wasn't seeing Jesus clearly. Correct. So in, in many ways, I think we need to disenculturate our following of Jesus from so much cultural and um, traditional baggage that gets yeah. attached. Yeah. Now, again, I'm not saying those things are necessarily bad. Much of it is actually quite helpful and beautiful. But at the same time, I do think it is so vitally important that we begin to uh, recognize what is what is like truly in its essence of Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus deeply, to be a committed follower of Christ uh, and belong to his people, the body? And then what's all the extra stuff that right. we need to assess? Is it helpful? Is it not helpful? Was it for a particular time and now is no longer effective? We need to do that work. Otherwise, I think most people, myself included, naturally default to whatever sort of big, um, you know, structure I have created around my faith, that entire mm -hmm. thing becomes, you know, my discipleship to Jesus. When in, yeah. in its purest essence, it's much simpler than that, much cleaner than that. Um, and, you know, this is for you. you. You do global work. This is a global podcast, people all over the world listening to it. So uh, I think that's one of the reasons why it is so important. It's one of the reasons why if you look at the history of, of uh, you know, um, missions efforts, Christian missions efforts, particularly from, from the global West to the global South and the global East, you see so much uh, um, brokenness. You see so much like colonization, you right, know, right. it's not like I'm just taking you Jesus. I'm also taking you Western culture. You have to dress like me and talk like me and eat my food and right. on and on and on. And I think, again, those things are not all bad. I'm just, I think we have to detach and disenculturate 
you know, the risen Christ and what right. it means to follow him from everything else so right. that we can see everything clearly. Uh, and so that our faith isn't built on these sort of, again, wobbly stilts of, of culture, but on Christ and Christ alone. Right. I think, um, you know, what you're talking about, uh, I've heard it said that in some senses, Jesus is not a Christian. And so without mm. being too too provocative around that um, and aware of some of the tenuous deconstruction that is around. But I think it's a helpful thought to say that the Christ of Scripture critiques every Christian expression. Um, yeah. You know, and I, and, and, and I think what you're talking about just for guys listening in, I'm really hoping you're tracking this because it's such an important thought is that. All of us have blind spots, and all of us are going on a journey to see Jesus more clearly. But I think what Jay's saying is, are we posturing ourselves with the willingness to recognize that our particular cultural expression isn't the wholeness of the Christ we worship? And so in some senses, all of us enter through a denomination or expression or tradition, but we have to keep walking, actually, toward Jesus. Would you agree with that, Jay? I would totally agree. And, and, you know, on the far extreme of it would be to, um, you know, C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. Right. So for me, the temptation is to look back on my youth group experience in the 90s and say, that's all rubbish. That's all garbage. That's all trash. What a waste. Now I have the true Jesus. But in reality, our stories matter. Right. So I think we have what we have to do is I, I love the way you said it, Matt. You know, we enter through probably all of us, a particular tradition, a particular relationship, a particular denomination, whatever it might be. And as we continue following Jesus, as our faith grows deeper and more robust, yeah, there we begin to see our past and our story in a particular light. Like, oh, that stuff wasn't helpful, um, but we have to continue on. And also ask the question, well, like, what was helpful? Certain Correct. components of it right. were incredibly helpful, you know? And so, so what I don't want to do is say away with tradition, away with history. I'm actually, um, I consider myself a deeply historical Christian. Mm-hmm. What I don't mm-hmm. mean is like I, I'm smart and I know history. What I mean is I have a I have a deep appreciation for and respect for the history of the Christian church and mm-hmm. what it has offered us and continues to offer us. But at the same time, it's exactly what you're saying. You have to keep walking. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you you um, insidiously, what many of us will end up doing is pledging our allegiance to a tradition exactly. or a denomination so so well or a particular idea or culture right. rather than pledging our allegiance to Jesus alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where um, it comes in. You know, you talk about how you primarily relate to Jesus as king. Mm, uh, I yeah. think, it, you know, it's Brian Zant who talks about the idea of Jesus is Lord, <laughs> then everything else is not. Um, yes. know, and and that, how does that flow into what we're talking about here? Yeah. Well, in any, in any kingdom, there is only one king. There has right. never been in the history of kingdoms, a multi-king. When that happens, it's called civil war, <laughs> you know? And <laughs> right. Um, right. so... There is only one king. That means everything else is secondary. You know, it means our desires and our longings, um, our brokenness, our shame, our guilt, our sin. uh, None of those things have rule and reign over us. It also includes our various traditions and, you know, uh, particular 
philosophical worldview theological opinions they are all secondary to jesus the king and for me what's you know one of the reasons i say that is because i i think particularly in the modern late modern sort of western world especially um we have you know we have bent the knee at the altar of self Mm -hmm. right we are at least here in america uh, we are the most autonomous, individualistic culture and society, very likely in the history of humanity. You know, people will go to arms here for like private, personal civil liberties. And I'm not saying those things are are evil. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I agree, you know, like the individual rights of, of human beings is, is clearly very important. But, um, one of the one of the consequences of that is we, we have lost a sense of of sort of the communal nature of human experience that we are not just individual persons making our way through the world but that we are at our finest we are a people mm. co- collectively called together to to learn what it means to be a people to live in communion with one another the only way that that is possible the only way any group of people ever thrives and this is true throughout history is when there is a good king or a good leader, one person with goodness and love in his or her heart that says, I will preside over, I will rule and reign over this people, not to lord it over them, not to enslave them, but to create the vast, ever-expanding boundaries of freedom and flourishing. We need that. Now, Human history is chock full of kings who took advantage of the power, but never, um, you know, provided the freedom and flourishing that for for the people. Um, but Jesus is the one true king, and he's a good king, you mm-hmm. know. And mm-hmm. I find a lot of comfort in that. I find yeah. a, a ton of sort of man because sometimes I look in the mirror, and when I'm really honest with myself, it's like, yeah. I do not have what it takes yeah. to craft the sort of life and certainly to craft the sort of world where humans can really flourish and God could really receive the glory. Mm-hmm. But Jesus can and Jesus does. And so, you know, when I pledge my allegiance to him, lay down my own crown and bend the knee to him, there is a sort of, you know, it sounds like a paradox, but there is a sort of freedom in in surrendering to a good king. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, so much of my hope in life sort of hinges on that, on that reality. Brilliant. So, man, there's so many things I want to press into there, but let's keep, <laughs> that was really good. We'll have to do another podcast another time yeah, yeah. <laughs> about kingship. Uh, I'd love for us to lean a little bit into a lot of your writing around uh, analog spirituality, so analog mm. church, analog Christian. Um, particularly in analog Christian, you talk about um, contentment, resilience, and wisdom in a digital yeah. age. And I think it ties into some of what you were kind of alluding to now, this hyper-individualism, how that's yeah. wrecking the soul. Speak to us yeah. a little bit about some of your thoughts around this analog Christianity in a digital age. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people are familiar with the data. You know, there's a lot of data coming out in recent years. You know, I think of social psychologists and social scientists names like Sherry Turkle or uh, Gene Twenge, 
um, Jonathan Haidt, you know, Adam Alter, Nicholas Carr. There's all these people that maybe some folks listening have read Cal Newport, you know, people like that come to mind. A lot of people in the last probably half decade or so have been writing in increasing measure about what just the data shows us. And what the data shows us is that the promise of, of a global village that the internet sold us in the late 90s and early 2000s has proven to be a farce. It has not created the sort of global village of belonging that it told us it would. Now, yes, we are digitally more interconnected than ever. And I, I, I just want to be clear, sometimes people misunderstand my work. They think that I am anti-technology or I'm like asking everyone to become a Luddite and throw away their phones. Right. And, live on a farm and turn their own butter or something. <laughs> that would be a good, I, I mean, good butter yeah, is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, if that's, yeah, you know, if that's your calling, sounds like a beautiful life. But for most of us, that's not what we're called to. And I actually have a deep appreciation for and gratitude for digital technology. You and I are talking right now because of digital technology, even though we are literally on the other side of the planet from mm -hmm. each other. What a gift, you yeah. know, what a gift. But um, so much of our digital sort of experience has just like gone off the rails. And mm. again, what the data is showing is that people are in, in the most digitized parts of our world, people are um, growing increasingly lonely, isolated, mm. depressed, um, de despair is on the rise. And that's not coincidental. You know, it's not coincidental. So for me, I, I, I wrote the book because one, primarily I felt the pain in, in me, you know? So the book really analog Christian, the newest book is really just a prayer. It was a prayer to God. Hey God, I recognize what is happening in me, the sort of undoing um, that is happening. And I need you literally by your spirit to cultivate, um, real fruit in me, fruit of connection to you and to people, you know, into the, to the world. And as I sort of went on that journey, I, I just kept circling back over and over again to the apostle Paul's, you know, famous words in Galatians five, where he talks about the fruit of the spirit and, um, how when the Spirit of God begins doing transformative work in our souls, that work bears fruit. And it doesn't happen overnight. You know, fruit, you can't microwave an orange, right? Mm -hmm. It takes a mm -hmm. long time. But if you stay with it and, and live an invitational life, inviting the Spirit of God to continue cultivating His fruit in you, it leads to a life of, again, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What I discovered in my own life is that those attributes, those characteristics of the, of the fruit of the Spirit, um, man, that's the antidote to so much that ails us in the digital age. You know, things mm -hmm. like despair, comparison, contempt, impatience, outrage, you know, all those sorts of things like, oh my gosh, it is the fruit of the spirit that bears the antidotes within us so that we can withstand all of the sort of destructive undoing that we're experiencing and the loss of contentment and, um, you know, wisdom and resilience.
And so for me, it was like surprising, but then not surprising. It was like, of course, it's the timeless word of God. And of course, it is the spirit of God. That's what the spirit of God does. He regenerates and transforms and brings about new life in us. So I've I've found a lot of hope in that. And, and my hope in prayer is that, you know, the book can offer um, that same hope to people. Mm-hmm. So what, I, what I'm hearing you say is... Um, uh, I love this idea that this book isn't you standing at a distance kind of critiquing culture. This book has come out of your own wrestle and a prayer out of your own heart. I think that's really helpful for people here is that um, you're not alone (laughs) in your journey. So as you, as you feel this wrestle, as you feel this, this tearing within you, that's a pretty common human experience right now. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that that then led you to this life of uh, invitation. Uh, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that and give us some practical handles. When you talk about this invitational life, um, someone listens into that and they go, man, that's cool. Practically, what does that look like for you, the, living an invitational life that invites the Spirit in? Yeah, I love that question, Matt, because it, it is practical. You know, mm-hmm. we can wax poetic all we want about you know, it's a nice phrase. It's a nice thing to say, live an invitational life. And it feels like it's some teaching at a conference or something or some mm-hmm. workshop. But what does that literally actually mean? And, you know, I, I don't want to be prescriptive here because I think individual human beings are individual human beings, all made in the image of God, Imago Dei, um, but wired and crafted by God and his imagination spun together in a very unique way. So I think the first thing I would say is living an invitational life is living open to the possibility that God is near you and with you, that by his spirit, he is already in you if you are a follower of Jesus. So he is closer than you might imagine. In the in the sort of busy, mad rush of life in the modern world, God is closer than you can imagine. You know, we think about the word for spirit in the Bible. In the Hebrew, it's the word ruach, and in the Greek, it's the word pneuma, and both words mean wind or breath, right. you know? And so for the Christian in whom the Spirit of God resides, every time you breathe, it's a reminder that this breath is the Spirit in you, sustaining you, giving you life, you know? You and I are alive right now, having this interaction, moving and being in the world because our hearts are beating and our lungs have breath. And there, it's all a gift Mm because there's nothing I did this morning to think to myself, okay, heart, continue to beat. You know, there's nothing in my mind that's like, I need to move X, Y, and Z mechanisms in my brain, and then I will begin to breathe. No, like my body just does the work. So it's a gift. And if my body stopped doing that work, which is outside of my control, I would cease being alive. I'd be dead. Right. So it's all a gift. And um, again, if the spirit is breath, and if the spirit of God is in us, then the spirit of God is a gift. And he is, he's not just sort of floating in the ether somewhere. He's right here. He's in my every breath. And so that's where I would start. Living an invitational life, I think, is living with deep, constant awareness Mm. that every breath is a gift of God. It is the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in you. Mm. And then beyond that, getting really practical, I think it has to, that reality has to make its way onto our calendars and our schedules. Mm. So again, whatever works for you. Um, One of the things I suggest to people is that 
you know, you have that incredible and tragic story very early in the scriptures about Cain and Abel. And, you know, the story tells us that Cain brings, that Abel brings his best and Cain kind of brings his leftovers essentially. <laughs> right. If you yeah. read between the lines. So if you think about our time as an offering to God, then the question would be, what is the best time and how can you offer that to the Lord? Mm. So that gets really practical. Like some of us are more, I'm a morning person. So I get up at five on most mornings and everything in my body and bones, still to this day, almost every morning when I get up, everything in my body and bones is like, okay, jump on the laptop and uh, get to work. You know, there's so much to do. But I try to um, practice and inhabit the the discipline of offering my best to the Lord. So instead, because I'm a morning person and my mind is pretty fresh when I wake up, um, I'll spend those first 15 minutes or so in quiet prayer and Mm. solitude before the kids and my wife are awake in the quietness of my home. I'll spend time listening to the voice of God through scripture. Mm-hmm. And I try to practice that at least five days a week, you know, Monday to Friday. I try to give God, offer God my best time. And and that's a part of inviting the spirit of God to cultivate his fruit in me. Mm-hmm. Um, another practical suggestion I would make, I talked about breath earlier. This has just been really practically helpful for me in recent months. So it's fresh. So I'll share it. Um, I've been wrestling with, um, some anxiety about a variety of things in the last couple of months in particular. And so I've been practicing something that I practice on and off from time to time um, that many people will be familiar with, but like breath prayers, yeah, yeah. You know, which literally are these short, succinct, throughout the day prayers you say in a breath, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and you inhale and exhale very intentionally. So because I've been wrestling with a bit of anxiety about some uncertainty about the future, Uh, The breath prayer I have been praying for the last month or so throughout the day is, God, you control outcomes. You control outcomes. The outcomes are yours. So I'll find myself quietly whispering that prayer in a breath as I walk from a meeting to another meeting or, you know, as I have my lunch quietly Mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. So there are practical things like that. There's so many others, so many Mm -hmm. um, spiritual practices uh, that people can incorporate. But those are a couple things that come to mind that have been really helpful for me personally. Love that, Jay. Thanks, man. And, you know, it just makes me think about this idea that in in our age, in our time, the greatest commodity really is our awareness. Uh, well, it's it's awareness so and good. it's time, right? It, yes. But everything yeah. is fighting for our awareness. And that's critical when you think about the fact that you become what you behold. So yes. whatever, whatever I'm constantly giving my attention to is what forms me. And so it's just so interesting. You know, we talk about practical and you start talking about awareness and people might think, give me more than that. But actually that's fundamental and profound. And I think yeah. this is, you know, when I'm chatting with people, I think this is one of the things that people often overlook is that the massive change in your life over years of following Jesus is actually built of really small decisions, like yeah. where you will put your awareness. That's you know? right. Have you, have you found yeah. that to be true in your life? And in what way is redirecting just your awareness? How's that shaping you as a person? Yeah. Well, first I would say, Matt, that's a profound thought and I couldn't agree more. I Mm -hmm. I agree. We become what we behold. You know, um, James K. Smith talks about uh, 
human beings are liturgical animals. What he means mm-hmm. is that we are formed by what we worship. And mm-hmm. we often think, Christians think of worship as like, oh, you mean the three songs I sing at church and then go into a service. And I was like, no, like every human worships something. You know, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people are familiar with that. So that's what James K. Smith means. And he says that as liturgical animals, liturgical animals live leaning forward. So all of us are leaning our lives in a particular direction. And where we lean our lives has everything to do with awareness. It has everything to do with attention, right? Um, You know, when uh, when I first learned how to ski as a young boy, what do they tell you? It's like, look where you're going to (laughs) go. Because wherever you are looking, it doesn't matter what you think. It's where you look. That's where you're going to go. Right. It's just the way it works, you know, right. so look where you're going to go. And that's life, you know, and so which is why awareness, what we think about, what we set our minds to, what we reorient our, our desires and longings toward, it's almost everything, you know. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think for me, getting practical again, so much of that has to do with um, being really mindful of our diet. You know, you think about like our physical bodies and, and, you know, we're nearing the end of the year. So we're going to hit January and men and women across the world are going to make some New Year's resolutions and commitments (laughs) like, okay, I'm going to cut out some of the carbs and no more late night snacking and, you know, a little bit more, you know, whatever, right? I'm going to juice, you know, this year or whatever. And that's great, you know, so our, our sort of awareness and mindfulness of, of like our physical diets is like almost everything. But but also, um, what about like our mental, emotional diet? Mm. I think that that affects our awareness so much. So, again, getting very practical, you know, if you find yourself spending most of your sort of downtime filling your heart and mind with the stuff of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram or news media and social media. Um, That's, it's just, it's, it's the same thing as eating a bag of Cheetos four times a day or Mm -hmm. having cake for breakfast. I mean, you're just filling your heart and mind with stuff that is going to have a particular effect on you on mm-hmm. who you are becoming. Mm-hmm. And so I think awareness, so much of it has to do with our diet. Mm-hmm. You know, where do we give most of our attention? What I'm not saying is like, don't read the news. But what I just mean is like, do you have a balanced diet? You know, like is the cake and the ice cream and social media and news media and Netflix binging, are those things supplemental to the primary diet of scripture and prayer and Christian community and deep, thoughtful sort of um, time you spend with the Lord? Or is it reverse? Mm -hmm. Is it mostly that you um, gorge yourself on the stuff of social media, news media, Netflix binges and whatever, and then sprinkle in a little bit of Bible and a little bit of prayer? You can live that way, but it will have a particular effect on the sort of human you are becoming. You know, Mm. so um, that, yeah, that's one hopefully practical sort of suggestion. Really, really helpful, Jay. So good, man. Uh, As we kind of bring our chats to to a close now, I'm just wondering if there's anything that is on your heart that you imagine people listening in right now, something that's stirring Mm. in you at this moment for, I guess, 
I mean, it's big to say the whole world, but you know, we're looking at the world. <laughs> we're seeing seeing a lot of yeah. people connected, people facing common things. Uh, what word of encouragement or challenge or exhortation do you have for people at this time? Yeah, you know, I've been thinking a lot about um, the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians. I think chapter four. He's talking to the Christians in Ephesus, and he says, "You are no longer strangers and foreigners." You are now citizens of God's kingdom and bound up together as members of his household. And, you know, that phrase, members of his household, it's like a single word in the Greek. And it um, in, in the ancient Greco-Roman world at the time, members of a household was a euphemism. It was shorthand for essentially your extended family. So what Paul is saying is, you were once foreigners and strangers, but you've become citizens of one kingdom. But more than that, you're family now. Mm. So like strangers, citizens, family. And the thought um, that I've been sort of carrying with me as I think about our church community, you know, here in the Silicon Valley, like much of the world today, um, it's very disconnected. It's very isolated and loneliness is on the rise. You know, we've already talked about this briefly on in this conversation. And so if, if I could say anything, if something is on my heart, I would just say one, if you're listening and you feel like you're a stranger, foreigner moving about the world, totally disconnected and unseen, I would just encourage you, there is a path out of that. Mm. That God um, has for you so much more, that He longs for you to be a and and as a follower of Jesus, you already are, whether you know it or feel right. it or not. Right, you already are a citizen of His kingdom. But more than that, you belong to a family. You Come have on. a family. You have a global family. You have a local family. And sometimes it takes work to find our family, mm-hmm. but it exists. You're actually not alone. You're not a foreigner. You're not a stranger. There is a global kingdom to which you belong and a global and local family um, to which you belong. And so maybe you feel alone. You feel like a stranger or a foreigner. I would just encourage you, um, ask God by His Spirit to continue moving you along that journey because there is a family awaiting you uh, with open arms, you know, and belonging is possible. So um, there you go. That's what's on my heart. Wonderful. Thanks, Jay. And uh, your books, Analog Church, Analog Christian, where, where can guys get get a hold of this stuff? Yeah, just anywhere, anywhere books yeah. are sold. So <laughs> Amazon little, and all the things. Yeah, all yeah. the things. Um, Great. So, yeah. We'll, we'll have a few links on the, uh, the podcast notes, guys, so you can just click on that and you'll find all of Jay's work. Thank you so much again for making time to be on the podcast. And uh, for everybody else listening in, we'll see you on the next episode. Have a good one.